the Mongols as they conquered. And it was so funny. It's like when they conquered the Jia dynasty or the Song and, and it finally conquered all of China. It, it was like they went to China, they defeated their armies, and then the Chinese said, all right, well, how are you going to rule us? And they're like, well, what do you guys do? We'll just, we'll just basically do that. But we're in charge now. Dad's Blog History. Welcome to Dad Bod History. I'm Eric. I'm Jake. And today we are going to discuss the Mongols to some yeah. extent. And when you mentioned this, Jake, a few weeks ago, possibly discussing the Mongols, something that was getting away from, we had spent a lot of time talking about the Civil War. We had spent a few episodes on different World War II things. Mm-hmm. Um, and you threw out the idea of discussing the Mongols, which I thought... Well, that'll be interesting. Um, I don't know a thing and about that's, the Mongols. That's literally how I threw it out. I'm like, well, we could talk about the Mongols. Like, there's no yeah. rhyme or reason yeah. for it. No, there was, like, there was a couple other items on there, and that was the first one. So I was like, well, yeah. shoot, let's do that. Yeah. Um, you know, when I did, when I've, in my studies, I've spent a ton of time on Europe. And it's not that I'm Eurocentrist or anything. It's really just, I was so fascinated with the middle ages i was fascinated with the romans i was fascinated with the renaissance and mm-hmm. and those threads of history that when i thought about the mongols I, I was just like well i almost conflated in many instances the mongols and the huns because they came from the <laughs> east yeah me too and yeah. they rode horses and they killed people and that's all they were mm-hmm. and obviously i knew that's not true but it's about as far as I took my my study of them. So, yeah. And I, I think it's funny because I remember, God, it was years and years ago. I remember, I don't know who said it or where I heard it, but they said, oh, well, you know, the Mongols had the, the largest empire in history. And I was so shocked. I'm like, no way the Mongols didn't do that. Like, it just boggled my mind. And then... You know, I read about it, and sure enough, like I thought for for sure the Roman Empire was larger, yeah. or Alexander Great at his extent was a larger empire. Um, and sure enough, it is the largest contiguous empire, so without any break in, in the land. Yeah. Um, I think the British Empire still is the biggest overall. Um, I mean, if you consider but, the, the waterways that they controlled, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the land, well, I mean, I guess if you can consider all these different disjointed yeah. lands it maybe it is larger but, but it just it just boggled my mind and and i never looked at it any for like i never looked at it in any depth after that um to my detriment because since we picked this topic and i've been reading about it it's just been fascinating yeah it, um, it really has been and you know i think well we consider the roman empire one of the greatest and, and it, this this doesn't lessen the Roman Empire's um, strength and power. I I don't know what numbers are in terms of populations. I'd still lean towards the Romans having maybe a larger population in their empire because everything they conquered was definitely inhabited. And there's well, large swaths of the Mongolian Empire that were probably pretty sparse. Yeah, and I, I think what you can say is if maybe that's an episode which which are the greatest empires in history um it depends on how you rank greatest certainly the mongolians had the largest um but the romans was a thousand year empire which is mm-hmm. uh i think 
the longest, if not one of the longest, if not the longest that I can think of off the top of my head. And if you consider the Uh, eastern part of the empire, it's another thousand on top of that. Yeah. So I I think you could look at different empires and and have different metrics for what makes them great, so to speak. But certainly after what I've read about the Mongols, you got to put them up there. Yeah. Um, Because it was just, it's amazing what happened. Um, in a relatively short period of time. Yeah, it, we're we're looking at like the <clears throat> late 12th century and almost the entirety of the 13th century. So, say 125 years, Chinggis Khan, also known as Genghis Khan, um, starts his reign in 1162. So it's about 140, uh, about 135 years, 130 years. Um, mm-hmm that the Mongols have this, this very powerful empire based in Asia where they maintain control over these, these distant other great empires that we would look at and say, these are great civilizations, um, but they're being dominated by Mongolians. And so yeah. one of the things I, I wonder is, well, what is it that makes the Mongolians able to conquer things like, uh, you know, like the Jia, the Jia Chinese, the Jin Dynasty, the Khorasmian, Khorasmian is that is that how I pronounce it? You know, the Turkic, we'll, we'll run with it. Yeah. Iranians, um, the Abbasid were, Dynasty in Baghdad. Yeah, yeah the, the descendants of the you know uh, the Persian Empire. Um, mm-hmm. They're able to conquer Poland, eventually and the Korean Empire, yeah, so, or the Kingdom of Korea. They they just yeah and, and it's something that struck me because I always it, think of Mongolians the word that comes to mind and I know this word just probably rankles any Mongolian historians is barbarian yeah because that's how they they've been portrayed by all these um, other civilizations that had something that the Mongolians didn't and that was a written language and I think it's funny because I was talking to my wife about this and I was like looking at the Mongolian. Uh, conquests of all these very established powerful nations in their own right and it was like the inverse of the Roman conquest of Celtic Europe Mm -hmm. where the Celts were the barbarians and the Romans came in and and while the Celts had their they had their fights and Vercingetorix and all that stuff um, they lost and you always knew that they were going to lose sort of thing And, and this is the inverse of that where these barbaric uncultured no written language people from the steppes of the Gobi Desert come sweeping through and destroy all these well-developed, civilized, strong nations. And they did it so quickly. And so it's just kind of a reverse of of what we often think of. Well, obviously, the, 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 more, the more civilized uh, country will win. And not in this case, at yeah. least not by our standard of what civilized is. Yeah, and I... Okay, this is off topic. Um, the word civilization, you know, it comes from Latin. You know what it comes from? Civitas, right? Yeah. And so that, that has everything to do with cities. People. Oh, cities. So the idea of civilization in, um, I got to look something up real quick. The idea of civilization is really tied to cities, at least in the West through Latin. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I had to look this up. And I wish I had written it down uh, because in Chinese, it's something else. In Chinese, it's Wenming. That's what civilization is in Chinese. What is it? And 
the first part, when, means text. And the second part, Ming, means bright. So the bright Chinese text. word for civilization has to do with bright text, which, I, I, as I understand it... So a written language? Writing. So <laughs> in, in the East, and again, that's, that's simplified Chinese, civilization has more to do with the ability uh, and necessity to write which I, I think just is an odd distinction between East and West. The two, yeah. Uh, yeah. You have, well, a city means you have civilization. Writing means you have civilization. Um, two very different ways of looking at it. So, yeah, um, yeah as the Mongols... Well, it, go ahead. It, it, no, and I, I think that's that's a good lead-in because it kind of... When I was reading this, and, and I, I read two books about this one I know you read as well it's called A Very Short Introduction The Mongols mm-hmm. um, and it's a series of books by Oxford Press so you know they're they're literally something you can put in the pocket of your your khaki shorts and uh, pull yeah, out and read whenever yeah, you want and it's it's they're it's designed like, uh, for for cargo shorts it's perfect yeah like they, they literally fit perfectly it's like a and it's like a primer or a cliff notes yeah, yeah. on civilizations. And so I was reading it and I was like, the, they kind of preface it with who are the Mongols before we figure out like how they conquered all these countries and who are their leaders? Like who are the Mongolians or, or Mongols uh, and, and where did they come from basically? And reading about it, you know, it tells you about, well, they're from the steppes of central Asia, which is a very dry, arid place. Only about 1% of the land is arable yeah. or can be farmed. The and, vast majority of it is pasture land or desert. And I'll, I'll, um, when, I, when I used to teach world history uh, back when we taught together, mm-hmm. one of the things I always told 7th graders, because the 7th graders are the ones who took the world history class, mm-hmm. is there's two things you need you absolutely need for a great civilization. One of them is um, access to trade routes and then control of those trade routes. And the second thing was access to water, like fresh water. Because the, the access to fresh water allows you to farm. It allows you to specialize. It allows you to develop a culture that is not dependent on hunting and gathering. And... Almost every civilization in the world that becomes great has access to those two things. The Mongols don't. They don't have they access. They do have access to trade. They have, yeah, they have plenty of access to trade and their ability to to rely on but no water. horse and the ability to everyone is a good rider. Um, mm-hmm. They don't have access to fresh water, at least not in any amount that allows them to depend on agriculture. Yeah. Yeah, and so they were largely herders, and they had very few artisans. They had they and they were very nomadic, and they yeah. they called them, you know. And whenever the weather got bad, um, they would have to move south yeah. so that they could avoid the zud. That's what they called it—a frozen, yeah, where, where the, so the everything ice freeze covered the grass. Yeah, and so then the horses and the cattle and all that couldn't eat, and couldn't eat, and so they had to move south. And, and so that was the, so they had no opportunity to like form cities. They they were not they were nomadic or semi nomadic at at best. Yeah. And they had no written language, and and so they were just kind of this 
group of people, disparate tribes and clans. And I think it was only about a million people in all of Mongolia, which is a very large area. Yeah. Uh, only about a million Mongolians uh, at the time of when Genghis Khan um, kind of unified and rose to power. So there, it, it just kind of gives you this stark lifestyle, and, and everything was based on being able to move and to move quickly yeah. and to— There's only a handful of animals that they used. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like the, the horse, the goat— Sheep, sheep. I mean, I mean, they're like, and then the oxen, yeah. and camel, and, and that was it. Everything else was not usable, or they didn't have access to it. Yeah. Um, and so you know, their diet kind of showed as well. It was based primarily on meat and a few local grains, but not something you could could farm in large numbers or large amounts. Mm-hmm. And. um and again, they didn't have any written language, yeah. and and well, so the other thing you mentioned was the lack of artisans. Yeah, which you know the word has. I've always had to define the word for a lot of people. It's basically craftspeople, so they don't have people making bowls or making, you know, who's a, a person who makes shoes or a person who makes thatch roofs. Like everything, there is, is no kind local of, blacksmith. Right, there is no right. Like if you're thinking of like a stereotypical town, medieval European town, yeah. There's your blacksmith, there's your cooper, there's your woodworker. Like they yeah. don't have those. And, and especially things that were when you when you say artisan, you're also talking about things that are crafted in a way that that makes them durable, but also um we start putting those things into uh the realm of art. Yeah. Um as well. And that's not something they have. Which kind of leads into how they deal with the people they conquer. Mm-hmm. Oh, it totally does, and it's so fascinating how they how they do, um, and, and so it just kind of gives you this uh, this uh, stark people, and I think that shows in, in their military, and and so what it shows is boys raised from a very young age were taught to ride a horse, and were taught to be able to hunt from a horse using a bow and arrow, and they would often get in fights with other tribes or other clans and, and the stronger ones would absorb the smaller ones. And, and so you kind of had this, uh, and I think Rosabi, the guy that wrote the very short introduction, he said there was no like status through inheritance. It was all based on merit. Like yeah. your, your position was entirely based on what you did and, and how strong you were. And I think that reflects throughout their, yeah. their, time as an empire is the strong survive the strong even as i that move on even as i read i think i came a couple across a couple passages where when a leader died nothing went to his oldest sons everything always went to the youngest Mm -hmm. which was again i just the inverse tried to wrap my mind around it why would it go to the youngest well that that prevents the older ones from battling it out but it also, you assume the oldest have already established themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's it was just kind of a curious note. Um, I could be wrong on the reasons, but yeah, and, and and so this is the world that Genghis or who the man who became Genghis Khan was born into. Uh, his name was actually Timujin, um, and he was born and I think who does said he was on a trip with his father, and then some some group of people met them on the road on the way back from some from this trip and they noticed that Genghis's dad was somebody that had killed one of their kinsmen yeah and so they 
they poisoned him. They invited him, oh, come down and, and eat with us. And then they poisoned him. And so then Temujin, this young child, had to basically fend for himself after his father was killed. And he did. He he was able to form alliances. He kind of hitched his wagon to a guy named Ong Khan, mm-hmm. who was a powerful Khan. And Khan just means leader uh, in, in Mongolian. Ong Khan, and he kind of rose up through there, eventually betraying Ong Khan. And, and he always allied himself with more powerful people and then eventually would turn on them and then move on to the next guy. And and that's kind of who he was as... As um, he was really a nobody. I mean that, and and yet he was able to survive in this unforgiving land with these brutal people that had no time for luxury and had no time for waiting for someone to catch up. And only did he survive, but he thrived. You know, and I just thought it was very fascinating. A lot of that reminds me of kind of the way the Spartans were. In the exactly. fact that the Spartans themselves did not partake in craftsmanship and the artisan stuff. They, they partook in only one thing, and that was, that was warfare. Now, the Mongols mm-hmm. had to do their hunting and gathering. They had to, do, they had to make their stuff, but there was no artisan class. Uh, the Spartans did have an artisan class, but if you're growing up as, a, as an actual Spartan, as one of the, um, the equals— and if you're growing up as a Mongol, it forges in you the ability to be decisive and to take action and fend for yourself in a way that's going to be effective so that by merit, you end up putting yourself into a good position. If you're one of the best, you're going to be recognized as one of the best. And that's mm-hmm. something that, that both the Spartans and the Mongols kind of have the ability to bring out in their mm-hmm. people. Yeah, and and I think, especially with with this whole like kind of culture of of hardship and survival, I think what what the man Temujin, who became Genghis after he defeated Onkan and had kind of united most of the tribes, he was able to to stand out on his own and say, "I did this," and people flocked to him. Mm-hmm. I mean, largely prior to Genghis Khan's arrival on the scene. You were loyal to your clan or your tribe. You weren't loyal to some king. That that concept didn't really exist to them. Uh, and so Genghis, who was the most powerful, was the one that everyone looked to. And so he had men flock to him separate from their clans. And so he had this own kind of standardized army come out of, out of this um, show of strength that he had. And I think uh, basically hundreds of years of Mongolians being self-sufficient because everything was about surviving, right? Yeah. Like every Mongolian warrior had to take care of himself. He didn't have, they didn't have uh, a caravan of camp followers right. to mend their horses hoofs and, and make sure that their weapons were sharp or make sure they could put up their, yeah, you don't and have, down. you don't have seven people for every warrior um, exactly doing all the different tasks. And the Mongolians, the Mongols kind of take that, um, makes them an efficient military Mm -hmm. but we've also seen their because of their their limited i don't don't want to say culture but limited in terms of how much they're putting into you know what we would consider academic pursuits and engineering pursuits you know their military is basically just men on horseback with bows and Mm -hmm. um 
that's very effective. Uh, and they have a great tactic where they'll feign feign a, their uh, numbers, uh, feign their numbers with dummies on horseback. Mm-hmm. But then they'll they'll withdraw. They'll they'll retreat, and then they'll have a whole other group come out of the flanks and and hit uh, any an enemy that's that's trying to pursue them. Uh, and they did that on on a number of occasions. But as they yeah. also go, um, as they conquer people, they also take on what who they conquered. They take on their their abilities, and so they conquered like the Western. Jia dynasty in China and one of the things that they had was they had siege engines and so when they went on to go attack uh, in in what is now modern day Iran they brought siege engines with them that the Chinese mm-hmm. had built and they said well we'll use these now as well which is it's just interesting that they were so e- uh, eager to um the word is escaping me, but just absorb a new idea and then implement it. And I, I want to get to that in a minute because that, that was another thing that struck out to me as we get into the, the nations they conquered. Um, but after Genghis kind of unified Mongolia, what was his next step? And I, I think the first thing he did was, uh, I don't know if they he conquered them, but they also kind of submitted pretty easily. It was the Ugiers. Um, which were just adjacent to Mo- the Mongol tribes. Yeah. And they were a Mongol, I think they were Mongolian themselves or, or a close relative of, but they had language. Mm-hmm. And they, so when Genghis unified the Mongol tribes and then he conquered the Ugiers, he took their language. So the first thing he took from a conquered peoples was their ability to write, not yeah. their spoken language, but their written language. And I think that was a big de- developmental step for them. Is, they, is that Genghis saw the value in the written word, which prior to this had been unheard of in that area. And, and so he took that and he said, this is now how we communicate with each other. And eventually they set up this huge Mongolian, essentially postal service yeah. um, to transport communication. And I think that was a big part of their success. But that was that first step in absorbing the conquered people's culture or tactics was absorbing the Ugir's written word and, yeah and then from there they moved on the mongols definitely don't have a superiority complex in terms of you know we defeated you so everything about us is better it was it, we defeated you what do you have that can make us better and and i see in a lot of ways the mongols never really they didn't adopt everything that they came across um mm-hmm. some things they come across would be like well that's great but that's not how we do it one of the things was agriculture they just they saw it and they're like one is they never really um, wanted to they didn't want to adopt it for themselves nor did they want to put their pastoral herding lifestyle onto people who had developed their own lifestyle of of producing food and the mongols saw listen for us it's the better way better th- way better thing to do is just to tax them not mm-hmm. destroy it. Just tax them. We'll take the taxes. Yeah. We're going to leave you alone. You farm as much as you want. Just give us a percentage. Um, they never really saw their way of life as superior to anyone else's, at least for and what I they think, conquered. And I think it was a good way to look at it is, is a, a good counterpoint empire is the Roman Empire because every everywhere Rome went, they Romanized 
the native people there or the indigenous people. They said, mm-hmm. you're Romans now. You're going to speak Latin. You're going to build your buildings like us. If you didn't have buildings, you're going to start making them. You're going to build roads. You're going to enlist in our army. And all these things. So, you know, by the time Rome left England, it was now Roman Britain. It wasn't, right. it was no longer the Celts. It was Roman Britain. And obviously France and Spain are indelibly tied to their Roman um legacy yeah whereas the mongols as they conquered and it's so funny it's like when they conquered the Xia dynasty or the song and, and it finally conquered all of china it, it was like they went to china they defeated their armies and then the chinese said all right well how are you going to rule us and they're like well what do you guys do we'll just <laughs> we'll just basically do that but we're in charge now like they didn't like yeah they didn't really they i mean they they, they obviously yeah. put a mongolian twist on everything but they were basically like well, what do you guys like? They didn't even put <laughs> a Mongolian like, twist on it. I mean, uh, Kublai Khan called himself the Yuan Dynasty. So mm-hmm. he took on a Chinese name. And they took mm-hmm. on, they're like, all right, well, who are the, who are, who do you have rule? Well, we have all these bureaucrats. Well, how do you pick them? They're the ones who show the most merit, the Chinese merit mm-hmm. system based on the Confucian system. Yeah. And they're like, all right, well, we'll do that. Okay, well, who are you going to pick? Well, you guys have the best people at this, so why don't we pick your people? And so you have Chinese yeah. people running the Mongolian Empire in China. But And there were some exemptions right. or exceptions to that. Like, they still made sure Mongolians got the highest offices because they were vastly outnumbered, especially in China, right. uh, by the Chinese yeah, you people. A, a million but, Mongols ruling, what, 15, 20, 30 million Chinese. Yeah. Um, it becomes something completely different. Uh, and that was what's interesting is like, and here is a... I guess a light bulb that went off or a connection I never made is when Marco Polo and both these books talk extensively about Marco Polo and mm-hmm. his trips to China. And it's like, well, Marco Polo went to China and the Silk Road and all that stuff. And I'm like, well, it was, this was Mongol China, right? Like this wasn't yeah. China, China, this was Mongol China. And I'm like, I'd never understood. I'd never made that connection before. It's like Marco Polo, like our whole concept of what medieval China was based on what Marco Polo was telling us was during the height of the Mongolian empire, not, not some Chinese dynasty, like the, the song or the, or the Jin. What was, uh, what was, uh, Marco Polo's route? I mean, he took the land route, right? Yeah. He took the, the silk road. He would have been in the Mongol empire from the moment he got into Turkey or into what we would now consider Iraq. He was in Mongol controlled territory from that point on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he left probably by boat to go to, you know, uh, the Holy Land, got off, went a couple miles, and he's in Mongol-controlled territory for the rest of his trip. Mm-hmm. Regardless of where he went at that point, uh, he was in Mongol territory because that was the height. Yeah. And when we say height, and we're talking about, like, the largest contiguous land empire in history. Mm-hmm. And that's what he was in. And so when he gets there... He doesn't meet with, I mean, he meets with probably plenty of Chinese officials. But when he does finally meet the leader, it's Kublai Khan. Yeah. Yeah. Who's only two generations removed from Genghis Khan. Like, and he had just finished conquering or was in the process of finishing conquering all of China. Like, it had just come under unified Mongol control by the time Marco Polo gets there. And I'm like... To me, it's just it just kind of blew my mind away. I'm like, he was it, 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 just a, I don't know. It's just it was kind of cool to see this whole 
connection be made in my in my mind like Marco Polo when he went to China that was he was meeting with a Mongolian not the Chinese emperor and right. like you said Kublai Khan to, assumed the Chinese name and the Chinese um uh, culture and, and really kind of supported Chinese growth and, and kind of wanted the whole empire to follow that, that Chinese model. But even so, he was still a, a Mongolian and, and he had his summer palace, Shangdu, and in Mongolia and all this stuff. And, and it, it was just a fascinating uh, connection yeah. that just popped up to me. Yeah, that is an interesting connection. Um, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned Shangdu, or what also called mm-hmm. Xanadu. Which yeah. was apparently a the movie great David as well. Bowie I did, movie, I think. I don't know. Really? Uh, I, don't know. I don't know. I haven't seen it. Clearly, I have no we're interest. not film buffs. We're uh, history buffs. Yeah. We're not film buffs. We watched one movie. That's all. Should you we do that up. for our next? Dad bod goes to the movies. Watch. I, I don't do? think it's as historical. <laughs> <For> historical <laughs> reference. <laughs> it's going to be pretty scant. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, Chinggis Khan. Uh, you know, I think we've all been like. Uh, enamored with that name Genghis Khan which we're both calling him Chinggis Khan too because we did some reading and apparently that's the mm-hmm. proper pronunciation yeah. um, because I think Genghis Khan started the Mongol Empire I, but he I don't even think he's the greatest I think Kublai Khan out, outdoes him in so many different ways well and, and Genghis or Chinggis died <laughs> so many of these Khans died kind of just suddenly because I think Chinggis uh, died right as he was about to continue his campaign into China. Um, yeah, he was because uh... he had, he had conquered. He'd conquered. Well, he'd started a campaign against the Jin Dynasty, defeating them in twelve fourteen. Um, and then he went to the Khwarazmian Shah campaign Khwarazmian. in twelve nineteen. Yep. Allah al Din Muhammad was killed. Um, Muster two hundred thousand troops, in a, and then after he conquered the Shah, he took three thirty thousand artisans back to China and Mongolia. So that whole like, as they conquered new people, yeah. they didn't destroy their culture, but they're like, we like this. yeah, we, we like these this. plates, we like this stuff you're making. Come back and make mm-hmm. it here, or just send us the stuff. Because and that was another thing is they loved that they loved the. The things they got from these places, yeah. which is not something they, they were used to having. They never had a place to put it. So they mm-hmm. always took what they could and they wanted more produced. Yeah. And, and they, and after this campaign, they, they you know took all these artisans. They'd used newly learned siege warfare to defeat the Shah. And so like as Chinggis is is subduing all these people he's he and his army is constantly evolving and they're constantly learning new things and so they went and when they defeated the jinn they didn't have any concept of siege warfare but once they defeated the jinn they did and they um took experts and ambassadors from china and said well teach us teach us this stuff and then they used that in their next campaigns and then they defeated those people and learned more and then used that in their next campaign or took their artisans or took their culture and said well we want to adapt that we want to bring this back to china or mongolia and it was just this it was like as much it's like the second they discovered the ability to read and write they couldn't get enough knowledge like yeah. they just everywhere they went they were craving more knowledge and obviously they were craving more territory but there was just <laughs> yeah. 
because that was kind of part of their mandate is they had to ever be expanding. A, a good con was always expanding his boundary. Mm-hmm. But th- there was also this this love of knowledge and this love of culture that I never thought of because, the like you said, when I'd heard about the Mongols, like, well, they're barbarians and they swoop, swooped in on horseback and destroyed a bunch of European cities and, and then just kind of left. And and now, after reading about this, like, no, they, they loved so much of what they encountered. And, and even if they didn't agree with it, they basically kept it intact. Yeah, if they could. Is, if they could, they wanted to keep mm-hmm. it intact because they knew when you th- keep things intact, and uh, this is something that uh, Americans, you can you can learn from this. When you keep things intact, there's more mm-hmm. to get out of it. So um, rather than blow things up and destroy things and burn <laughs> cities to the ground, yeah, you know, take from it what you can and, and use it. And that's what it seems like the Mongols um, did was they just they'd swoop in. And, you know, when they met resistance, they said, listen, uh, you can you can surrender and we'll march through and take what we need or you can resist and we will burn your city to the ground and kill half your people. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they did that. They kept their promise every time. And they didn't have to do it often, though. No, because cities would just surrender eventually. Be like, it's we don't care who takes the title of king in our land as long as we get to live. And yeah, go live. about our yeah, our, our and that's life. what they got to do. Um, so yeah, so he Genghis, died. What about twenty twenty seven? Yeah, twelve twenty seven. Yeah. Um, twenty seven. Sorry, and then. Um, Ogade, which is a name I had not heard mm-hmm. until I did some of this reading, uh, he takes over a couple years after that. And yeah. Ogade is the youngest son, or a younger son of Genghis Khan. Um, he's the third son. So I found him interesting. But again, like you said, it's this desire to keep going. And so he actually goes and he finally defeats the Jin dynasty, which his father mm-hmm. had been working on for a while. He was involved in defeating Georgia and Armenia, which mm-hmm. are there tucked between the Black and the uh, Caspian Sea. Let's see. Um, dealt with Korea. He invaded Song China, also started invading India. One of the things I remember reading about the Mongols is as the further south they got, we're talking about getting into what we would now consider Vietnam, Indochina. Um, that's where they found the most difficulty because now they're they're trying to do their campaigns that they had been used to doing in those barren, wintry wastelands. They're now doing them in the jungles of Vietnam, mm-hmm. and they're much less effective because they're not prepared for that. They don't. They can't change into summer gear. They can't. Uh, change their tactics too much. Well, and, and cavalry in general struggles in forests. Yeah. And when your whole army is essentially mounted archers, it's going to struggle yeah. in, in the jungles of, of Southeast Asia. Yeah. Um, but he also um, was the con when they when they made their, their they wanted to have a capital city. And remember, they uh-huh, made yes. the capital city Car- of Karakoram. Karakoram. And, you know, kind of trying to... 
It was an artificial city, as I think I saw someone saying. Yeah, it was truly trying to, a... they're like, well, the Chinese have a capital city and the Khwarazmians have a capital city. Maybe we should build a capital city. And this is before Xanadu, Shangdu. Um, they're just like, well, we'll build it here. This is a good place. And the issue was, well, there's no arable land. They had to constantly ship food in because the place couldn't support itself. So when you say an artificial city or an artificial capital, it was both. Um, it couldn't sustain itself. And so while it still exists to this day, there's still stuff there. Um, what's the what's the big city in the United Arab Emirates? Dubai. Dubai right? Built in the middle of a spit of desert on the on the sea. Yeah. And it only really exists because of its massive wealth. Yeah. And that's kind of what Karakoram was. It right. existed because the Mongolians were wealthy and they could, they could afford to ship up to food a point in. to keep shipping food and supplies. I think in, the population but... only got up to one hundred thousand. That's about all it could sustain. Yeah, and then eventually, I think Kublai Khan said, "We're we're not going to support this as our capital anymore," and, yeah. and then moved it to Kaiping. But Ogade, uh, he, you know, he was, um, you know, one of the Khanates. One of the, mm-hmm. the different kind of sectors of the Mongol Empire was the Golden Horde, which was ruled by his, uh, I want to say, is it brother? Was it his uncle? Batu. Batu. Which would be his nephew. Um, yeah, Batu was his nephew. He was the uncle of Batu, yeah. And, uh, you know, it was during his reign that Batu um, was leading the invasion into Europe. Specifically, Poland and Hungary, and they had conquered, and you know, Russia had already basically fallen. Kiev, uh, Moscow, these all these cities were were done, part of the Mongol Empire. Now they're invading Poland and Hungary. So I mean, mm-hmm. they're they're pretty deep into Europe at this point. Um, mm-hmm. When Ogade dies, and when Ogade dies, because he's the great Khan, he's the Khagan, uh, they all have to stop. And they have to come back to decide on the next great con. Yeah, it's so funny. And it happened, unfortunately, a few times during the Empire where they were making all this progress and they were ready to conquer the next great thing. And then the Kagan died. And they're like, oh, all right, well, let's stop and go figure this out. And then we'll come back to this in a couple of years. And that's what happened with the Golden Horde, which was sweeping through. Russia and Eastern Europe. And and here's something that I thought was so ironic was when the Golden Horde was sweeping through Russia, the Russians are like, well, winter's coming. They're not going to attack us during the winter. <laughs> Little did they know the Mongolians were used to the hard, cold winters yeah. and their horses were as well. And so the winter didn't save the Russians. And, and so that was a big part of why Moscow fell and Kiev fell is because... They didn't expect the Mongolians to 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 continue the campaign during the winter, and I guess that that's just a lesson of never assume what your enemy can or cannot do, yeah. um, because it, it it was much to the the Russians' detriment, and um, and I, I think what's interesting about when I was reading that is who was the the king of was it Poland or Hungary, and he you know mustered about eight thousand men and they went to go fight. And um, go fight the the Mongolians uh, kind of outside their city, and 
they lost. Even though they were equal, marched in or they were numbered about the same, they they lost because they were lightly armored and, and weren't prepared to fight thousands of horsemen with art with bows and arrows. Yeah, and so then they lost, and then the Mongolians were about to come into the city and the people of the city put up stiff resistance. And so they kind of just said, all right, well, we're not going to pursue this um, going into the city, but they carved a big enough chunk out of Poland, modern day Poland and Hungary that they were effectively controlled. Yeah. Uh, but then, like you said, Ogadai died and that all just bam stopped. And they're like, Nope, we got to go take care of this, which is so, so far removed from, I guess, in a modern American's understanding of how to wage a war. Like, if in World War II, when Delano Roosevelt passed away, there was no stopping of fighting in the European theater right. or in the Pacific theater. It's just, nope, we have a contingency in place. Truman takes over, and the secretaries of the Navy and the Army continue administering yeah, the I mean, war. Yeah, I mean, that becomes kind of a, you see that as, it's not even a Western... Um, thing it's it's you know because in china they have the same thing they have dynasties so you have this this system that puts into place when somebody dies here's how we change power um in the united states if a president dies the vice president is next up like we have this line of succession in Mm -hmm. england if the king dies well who's the next in line we got it all figured out we're ready to go we can do that within a week we can have the next guy coordinated for the Mongols, since they don't have a specific line of succession and they want to make sure everyone's going to be behind the next person, they stop. And maybe it was a, they, even in all their conquests, they not, never saw or never adopted a, let's come up with a line of succession. They just said, well, well and I guess that's the, the, the downside of a meritocracy is that. When you have all these cons vying for the title of Kagan, is they all have a, a valid claim to make for that title of, of great Khan. and I think that's where yeah, it was since, kind of a, a negative. Like Batu Khan, why wouldn't he want to make a claim as as the title yeah. of the great Khan? I was Look about to conquer Europe. You guys should let me do it. Yeah, or similarly, uh, Kublai Khan saying, look what I'm doing in, in China, mm-hmm. or um, Chagadai, or like all these different cons, and they're like, we can all make a case. And so you have to go in, convene, and then vote, and and uh, and kind of move on from there. And and so I think it's just kind of a, a unique look into how they functioned from top to bottom as a society, not just... Yeah. Not just at a at a individual or, or family level. Yeah, even though it does stay in the family for many years, mm-hmm. um, it's never guaranteed. Uh, and I think that that's interesting. Also, the timing of some of these deaths, like Ogade, like um, Genghis, it just they happen almost at the brink of what could be the next big junk jump in the Mongol empire into something that just considering the implications and we can get into this, uh, in a, what if episode, Mm -hmm. what if Ogade doesn't die and Batu Mm -hmm. can keep pushing on Europe? That's, that's a, we'll talk about that later, but, um, it's, it's a very different system from basically what everyone else in the world does. 
And yeah. it does set them and, apart. And, and I think after Ogade dies, um, it looks like there's a couple other great cons until Genge, or sorry, until Kublai Khan comes in. There's Guyag Khan, and then um, Monkey, okay. who rules from twelve twelve fifty one to twelve fifty nine, and then he suddenly dies again. And it's like, and so then Kublai Khan takes over in twelve sixty, and he's kind of like you said. I, I think if we often think of Genghis or Genghis Khan as the greatest Mongolian because he was kind of the first great Mongolian, but I, I would say Kublai Khan. Um, probably was more influential and certainly had a much more far-reaching impact on a unified Mongolian empire. Yeah, he, uh, it would remind me in some ways of the Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus comparison. Julius Caesar, mm. uh, he was the first first citizen and in some technicality or in some practicality was the first emperor because um, he was the first person who really ruled Rome single-handedly mm-hmm. until his death. But then when Caesar Augustus is actually made the, f- the first emperor, um, the technically first emperor. emperor, he um, And he really becomes the standard for all emperors yeah, and, thereafter. And he, he is greater by far than Julius Caesar in terms of what he does for the Roman Empire and the kind of things he puts into place. Um, yeah, he's not the warrior necessarily no. that Julius Caesar is, but he's a far better ruler than yeah. Julius Caesar was. Yeah, I think that's a a great comparison to make is is Kublai Khan Kublai Khan um was far more impactful in in making the Mongolian Empire what it was. Yeah. Yeah, so I you know, in in terms of his reign, which was well over 30 years, which is kind of a a big deal. You know, he became he created this Chinese dynasty that was a Mongol-led dynasty, the Wan dynasty. Mm-hmm. He um, he also led a lot of these um, incursions, including to Japan. So I think mm-hmm. you have some of the. De- I don't. Do you want to wait on the details for that for something well, else? Well, I, th- I mean, I think we can we can do a a, a little nickel tour of the Mongolian invasion of Japan. Uh, but basically, the after Kublai Khan unified China under his rule. He'd finally defeated the Song dynasty, which was the last holdout. And they were friendly with, with Japan uh, in terms of trade and, and diplomatic relations. And he had gotten Europe, uh, or, I'm sorry, Korea um, fully subdued. He immediately started leveraging those nations, the Song and, and the Koreans, um, to pushing across to Japan because he had heard about it as a land of gold. He sent some emissaries there. And um, to to have friendly relations is what it says. And the Japanese basically told him to go pound sand, uh, <laughs> kill the emissary sort of thing. And uh, and so that incurred his wrath. And, and that was a very Mongolian tactic is they would always send emissaries and they would treat um, envoys as sacrosanct. You don't kill an envoy. If you kill our envoy, we will destroy you sort of thing. If you say no to our envoy, we'll probably still destroy you, but not as bad. Yeah, like that was well, kind even of if their, the city, their MO. Even if the city surrendered, we're still coming mm-hmm. after the person that killed or ordered the killing yes. of the emissary. Mm-hmm. So it was very to them. They they and they were very. And I could go off on about how they treated emissaries and envoys and their whole um, passport system and all that stuff. But 
The point is the Japanese made him upset um, by killing the envoy. And so then he he eventually staged two invasions of, J- of Japan. And, um, and it, it was one of his few defeats, really. I, it was the only time that I can think of where he, they... They truly got beaten back. And this is where the, the whole kamikaze thing comes from, which is Divine Wind, mm-hmm. a typhoon, destroyed the Mongolian fleet. And, um, you know, I, 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 but it's, there's a lot more to it than that, um, especially on, on how the Japanese fought and, and how, how well they fought against this seemingly invincible force. Uh, but I think, and, and you made a good point when you're talking about when they went south into Vietnam and... Um, like Cambodia and, and India, and how they struggled fighting in the jungle. Well, their strength was in men on horseback shooting bows and arrows. Yeah. So, again, crossing the Sea of Japan, even from Korea, you're 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 negating your strength by using boats. You can't do sweeping cavalry movements from boats, and and so I think part of the problem was. They they had a they had a struggle in adapting to that amphibious assault. You know, we had that episode about amphibious assaults. Yeah, a few episodes ago, and this theirs wasn't the greatest. No, not the greatest. Massive numbers, but yeah. not the greatest. And I think that's that's why it failed. But again, that would be one defeat um, out of a litany of victories, especially in unifying. Um, Southeast and Central Asia and, and the expansion of the Empire West under Kublai Khan uh, was incredible as well. Uh, by this point in time, I think pretty much all of what we'd consider modern day Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, much of India was was under Mongol rule. Yeah. Um, and in addition to that, he and this is where I think his impact really hits. And I'm, I'm sure you've you kind of mentioned this already his ability to transport Chinese ideas West and Chinese culture West and bring Western um, ideas and doctors and medicine East um, was something that it, it, it kind of diffused these two previously um, cultures that had never really had much contact. Yeah. And he just this massive <clears throat> influx of, of knowledge and people to and from both Western Asia and Eastern Asia and Europe, um, that 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 I think is really well. I think one of the where Kublai Khan had his biggest impact. One of the ways I, I read is that the the Mongol Empire was the first. It was when global history started because mm. it's when you you had the far-reaching Chinese empires finally have cognizant contact with and vice versa of the European empires. The Chinese knew about India. India knew about the Iranian empires. The Iranian empires knew about, you know, the Turkic empires. They knew about the Eastern European empires, but there was never that, that contact from both sides. Uh, And he does two things. He and some of the other Mongol Khans do the same couple of these things. One is they, I, I, I don't know where I came up with this. Russia, the Mongols have done what the United States could not have done. They've they've connected with China, Iran, and Russia in a... And Korea. All and, Korea. and Korea in, in a... Uh, through conquest, but still 
in like a cooperative, right? So they're they're taking art and crafts from Russia, from what is now Iran, from China, and they're sending them in every direction. Mm-hmm. And they're connecting those cultures in a way that, that they won't be connected by and for another 700 years. And it's really fascinating to me that they just, they took these places and then they, they took what they had and they dispersed it in every direction. Well, in, in, the, in the tales of Marco Polo, in Europe, it became like a, a bestseller. Yeah. I mean, it was everybody wanted to know what what is this land that we've never really heard about before, and um, that's the uh, when when China, the porcelain, became popular in yeah. Europe was because of the cons and and because of their ability to transport. And not only did they allow the making of, of fine china, they were like, no, in Iran, you want to make sure the plates are bigger because they do everything kind of family style. And in Europe, you can have them smaller. And in this country, make sure you put dragons on because these people really like dragons. And like yeah. it, they were they were so corporate about it. They're like, no, make sure we tailor to each different group that we're selling this to. And they were and like so American kind of, corporations, weren't they? They exactly They would were. change their profile based on the month it was. There's a good chance that Google and, and Mongolia are the same thing, if you can rearrange the letters correctly. But <laughs> um, it, it's just fascinating because later on in the, in the book, uh, the very short introduction, he, he mentions how there's a – I think Christopher Columbus had a copy of Marco Polo's le- yeah. um, writings on his trip to the New World because the trip to the New World wasn't to discover a new continent. It was to get a sea route to China. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason they cared about getting to China so much is because of the Mongolian Empire and how the Mongolian Empire basically opened China and the rest of 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 Eastern Asia to the world, to the rest of the Western world, and vice versa. Yeah, the Western world was now opened up to the East. Yeah, and and it is surprising there there the amount of tolerance the Mongols had again coming from a place where I think. The Mongols are, are basically barbarians who lucked out and managed to conquer all these places. I never really understood how much they conquered in Asia. Um, again, that's that kind of Eurocentric lens of history. Mm-hmm. What they do to Europe? Well, they conquered a few places. Oh, so it was close. Like They almost wiped it out. Yeah, but they actually conquered the Iranian Empire that was there at the time. They conquered the Chinese. And, and their cultures remained intact through that Mongol mm-hmm. empire. Um, but also the kind of the last thing that really stuck in my mind, um, they were very hospitable to the people that came to them specifically when it came to religions, mm. which really th- threw me. Um, the Mongols had their, I guess they're largely shamanistic. Yeah. Their shaman religion, but they came across Confucianism. They came across, Islam, they came across Buddhism, they came across Taoism. I think Taoism was the one that they really were not fond of. It was the one that well, they were yeah, kind of like, and there was a, no, we're not going to do it. I don't know if I want to get into it because there was a, 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 a conflict between the Buddhists and the Taoists. Mm-hmm. And, and Kublai Khan said basically, and this reminded me of the Old Testament, I think it was the prophet Elijah did the same thing to the prophets yeah. of Baal. He basically <laughs> just, said. Just, you know, that came up in a text with Cameron today. Oh, did it? Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and and any, anyway, like Kublai that. Khan said, Kublai Khan said, uh, okay, 
Buddhists and Taoists, especially Taoists, because you say that your God will do all these that that you'll do all, you can do all these miracles, you can heal people, all this stuff. And so he said, "All right, put your money where your mouth is." And when they couldn't do it, he goes, "All right, Buddhist twin, Taoist, you guys get a temple." Seven, you guys got to shave your heads and you got to give back the stuff you took from the Buddhists and that's it. The Buddhists win. And that's like how he decided it. And he didn't kill anybody. He didn't like, you know, as you think of conquerors who do with other religions, he didn't burn down their, their temples or anything. He just said, these guys win. You look silly. Let's move on. And some of the, the wives of, I think it was Ogede, could have been Kublai. Their wives were Mm -hmm. Nestorian Christians. Christians. Yep. Nestorian being a, a group that, doesn't believe in the divinity of Christ, I think. Yeah. Um, so they, they would be on the outs and the Orthodox and Western Church. But surprising that, that Christianity had actually made some inroads that far east. Mm-hmm. I knew that like a thousand years earlier that there was con- contact in India and China, but that those yeah. had kind of been wiped away. So the fact that the story in Christianity had made it as far as Mongolia— and that even in the right. upper circles of the Mongol administration, yeah, part it, was, of the, it was taking the hold. The expansion of Islam into much of the Middle East and into Pakistan and Afghanistan and, and India and Mongolia and China was because of the Mongol Empire, mm-hmm. is because of that openness. And I think uh, Kublai Khan was a very, he's, though he never converted, he was very pro Buddhist. Um, but later Khans converted to Islam and, and were able to kind of spread that throughout and so there's just this they didn't impose their their own native religion although the people that lived in mongolia still practiced that but they're basically like oh russians you're orthodox okay that's cool you guys can do that and oh down here in in iran you're muslim okay that's fine yeah that's we're not going to interfere with that as long as you guys basically pay your taxes we yeah, don't they, care. They were much more interested in in getting taxes from people to the point yeah. that they they wouldn't destroy cities. They wouldn't destroy agriculture. They wouldn't try to uh, improve upon what people were already doing there because they they just knew these people know what they're doing here. If we let them do their thing, we can extract more. It's kind of taxes. the whole idea of self rule, yeah. right? Like, and I think the you Romans, know how to best operate. The Romans kind of did that in some. They, they wanted to Romanize. They wanted to spread their Roman traditions or Roman ways. But they were more interested in keeping people from revolting. And if that meant well, largely, keep your religion, um, keep your way of life, just One example taxes. is the, the temple in Jerusalem right. was rebuilt under the Romans and had the, the, the people of Israel not kept rebelling. I mean, the Romans were largely like, yeah, do whatever you want. We're, that's not our, our problem. As long as you don't rebel and as long as you pay your taxes. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, that, that is true. So, but yeah, it it was just an eye-opening couple of reads um, yeah. on some on, a, on an empire that's, even though it only lasted, like you said, 140 years or so, was so influential in how it shaped world history and how it shaped the diffusion of culture across continents, yeah. Africa, Asia, and Europe, all yeah, three of them. It really was that first step into global history and thinking, well, that was as early as 1200 when we really start yeah. thinking beyond the continent we're on. Um, that's that's really pretty amazing. And um, it's, a, it's another piece in the puzzle, for me at least, in terms of 
all the world history, all the pieces I have, I know there's areas that are kind of, they're, they're less clear. And, and this kind of, it's a big puzzle piece that fits in there and, and it kind of connects to some other pieces that I have. Um, you know, one of the other books I have in the, the very short series is on the Silk Road, um, mm-hmm. which I'm sure will tie greatly into the Mongols. So, Yeah. So that's what we got on the Mongols. Yeah. Uh, that was a fun one. I think we are going to do a couple what ifs uh, on this one just because there's, there's so many opportunities for yeah what if and, and how greatly it would have even impacted things more so. Um, yeah. That's all I got. I'm Jake. I'm Eric. That was Dad. If you guys have any suggestions? Oh. Oh, if you got any suggestions for us? I'm sorry. Do you want to redo that? No, I mean cut I'm not going to we'll cut it. it. Post. I'm not going to fix it in post. I can't. <laughs> if Nick gets on with us, he can. No. Um, but if you have any suggestions for us, and uh, make sure you like and subscribe. Throw some comments down. We respond yeah. to them. Yes, we do. All right. Thank you very much. Have a great night. Have a good one.